0: Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. Mm -hmm. And uh, today, uh, we have two incredible guests. Uh, The first one, Fred Burton, uh, is one of the world's foremost experts on security, terrorists, and terrorist organizations. He is a former State Department Counterterrorism Deputy Chief and DS agent, New York Times bestselling author, uh, some of his books, Ghost, uh, just finished up reading Under Fire. Um, And he also works for Stratfor as the Chief Security Officer. Uh, The other guest today is Ted Andre. Ted is an award-winning producer and production executive who has successfully developed and produced cutting-edge, critically acclaimed, independent content for theatrical, television, and web release. He's also the co-founder of Blue Blood Films. Gentlemen, great to have you
1: here. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us, John. Mm
0: -hmm. And so I kind of want to jump in here because people that tune into this podcast, usually every time I've had two guests on at the same time, uh, they know, oh, it's about martial arts or movies, or it's about uh, veteran affairs. And today we are lucky to kind of have two people that have a unique friendship, which we're going to talk about, but in different backgrounds and fields, TED and music, and obviously Mm -hmm. uh, Fred here with the government and counterterrorism and stuff like that. And so when I reached out to Fred um and i was well aware of his work and everything he's always posted on instagram and i'm someone i can't read a book i if a book comes out i have to put behind a list of other stacks of books i got i got 10 books to read uh i read ghost uh before i even reached out to him and then i just finished up under fire and so when i reached out to fred uh um, i said man i would love to have the show and talk about your life your career and he goes well how about this other idea too uh where i bring my friend ted in um and obviously we're here today and to kind of kick this off uh, first, hope you guys are safe and well. And how has the last couple of years kind of uh, treated you guys? Um, obviously, with this whole thing that's been happening for everyone. Well,
2: I'll, I'll go, go ahead. I'll, go, I'll, ahead I'll go ahead and, and and say that the uh, the last two years have been really interesting in the entertainment business, specifically because it's kind of necessitated a new way to work. Now, uh, there's always been a collegial aspect, and that a lot of that involves being in a room, so to uh, so to speak, but. Uh, on the other hand, it's kind of uh, facilitated another means of communication that now we are doing, in fact, today with Zoom that has become a, a new way to reach out across a greater distance. So it's been a slightly different way to achieve things and certainly a, a big sort of uh, a change at the beginning of all this. But I think we're starting to kind of navigate it a bit better and in, in that regard and, and you know, kind of see how to make this work.
1: Right. From my end, John, uh, you know, when you write books, it's a lonely business uh, and that's just fine. With me, I I don't I don't mind the loneliness of um, of uh, the actual craft of putting a story together, the research. That's really what interests me. So, but you know, I live down here in Texas, and Texas has been hit hard with COVID. Um, And you know, certainly the public safety community, which I'll always be a part of in in my mind, uh, has been hit extraordinarily hard, and healthcare and so forth. So. I think we're all just hoping that we can claw our way out of this and have some degree of normalcy at some point in time. Uh, just to
0: start with you, Fred. Obviously, bad guys and bad people and bad with bad intentions—they're not COVID or pandemic or whatever—is not going to slow them down. And so, for someone like you, who always has the foot of the gas in terms of always wanting to make a difference and it just kind of get some of these these bad entities out of there. How do you kind of navigate the idea that you might be stuck at home or you can't do as much traveling or speaking or networking as you normally do, yet the bad guys are out there, they don't care. They don't really care about laws and rules.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, question, John. And uh, I'm as you were asking me that question, I'm thinking through my mind, uh, You know, all the DHS fusion centers that are around the country, the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces. And I have Several friends and colleagues assigned to a lot of these, the CIA's Counterterrorism Center, and and so forth. And I I think we forget at times as a nation uh, the work that's done in the shadows in the intelligence community, uh, and they're battling the same thing everybody else is: COVID, COVID, in the family, whatever. And um, then of course you have uh, you know our embassies and consulates scattered around the globe that are really really on the front lines of of danger and historically have always been, you know, suffered a lot of tragedy. So, um, it's an interesting time that we live in, you know, with the pandemic. And, you know, probably if you look at this strategically, we haven't experienced anything like this in the world since the world changed on nine 11. And, uh, you know, now we, now we're stuck in the midst of this global pandemic.
0: Now, I totally understand the need for people like yourself, these agencies to operate in the gray area, whether you're undercover work, whether you are taking down a terrorist, whatever you're doing in this world, we need men and women to do this job. And but for I also see where people like someone like Ted and I, who are the outside looking in are like, okay, we get it, but how much can we trust the government to do the right thing? Or like what sides at play? And I know it's like this crazy espionage hmm. and Hollywood and TV is always like, Oh, the government's bad. This, that. But for you to actually be in that world, where how detrimental is that? When people, as a collective whole, whether it's a small group of people, we're um, like, oh, I can't trust the government. They're spying on me, or maybe they're targeting the wrong people. It's is that ever bother you to do your job?
1: No, it never bothered me, John. The you know uh, political administrations come and go every four years. Uh, as, uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, we still went to work every day. Uh, it never really mattered uh, politically who was in the White House. It's much like any other protection detail. Uh, we all, Everybody had a job to do, and, and everybody does their job quite well. And so, you know, policy may change, you know, coming down from the NSC at times, you know, whether depending on the whims or whatever administrations is in play. But at the end of the day, you still have military intelligence officers analysts out doing their job and uh mm-hmm. i think that there's this uh, misperception that that somehow stops you know due to politics which is totally inaccurate uh you know uh, everybody just goes to work every day doing the best job they possibly can gotcha
0: one of the things, Ted, uh, as I I actually had the opportunity to do security for a bunch of bands and stuff through the pandemic, doing the drive-in shows and the stuff that you and I are not traditionally used to arenas and stuff because of the, the capacity and social distance. And one of the things I really realized, and when I'm working, I don't I've probably heard band songs a million times, and when I hear the song, it, I'm just so focused on my job that I don't listen to the lyrics. But for the first time as we step back to the, the first show back in Philly out in the parking lot, I was kind of blown away that music mm-hmm. has this silly really nature for people. As you know, uh, whether it's a song or a message, whoever it is, and to hear these people the last year and a half, two years, been so cooped up to hear a certain song that they've been wanting to hear for the last couple of years, it was super powerful for me. So as a musician, how awesome is it that, it, I mean, it's unfortunate it takes a, a pandemic or whatever to get people to appreciate some music and messages and stuff, but for yourself to still be in that world, it's gotta be super powerful for you and motivational where it's like, man, my songs, my work actually made a difference and people needed this.
2: Well, yeah, I, I think to, to your point, music is a very uh, uh, a unifying uh, factor. And to, and to that point also, it can kind of overcome barriers, whether it's a language barrier, whether it's a cultural barrier, and, you know, I noticed this uh, when we, as a kid, when we were overseas in Germany, for example, that uh, it didn't matter if the songs were, you know, in English, the, uh, the German crowds and, and the people in the room would just universally kind of come together based on the excitement that that song can generate. And I think it transcends, uh, uh, like I said, all these barriers and just collectively really has a way of bringing the crowd together. It's a very uniting factor. And even a conversation starter if you talk, you know you talk to someone you got the same band that you like so it's it's very cool in that regard.
0: Now, would you try it out uh, for Ozzy Osbourne's band? Was this? Did you think today that his the the length of his career and longevity would be where it is today? Because for you to even have the opportunity to do that is super incredible.
2: Well, yeah, and that's that's a day obviously I'll never forget. And, and in fact, being in a room with those musicians with uh, Phil Susan and Randy Castillo was just amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys are at the top of their game, but certainly. If you look at the legacy and and the unique footprint that that band had, if that's the right term for it, but they had they left a mark on music in a way that's like you know irreplaceable. And so when you look at the uniqueness of that and and the legacy of songs that they leave that we're still listening to today, then it's it's tough to say, you know, at that point, hey, they're gonna be around for another you know 30 plus years or however long you know it's gonna be. But you certainly get the sense by the nature of when you're in the room and you see those songs played in, in a concert hall. And you watch the crowds all sing along in unison. That that translates, and that translates generations. And you know, to that to that degree, I think he still is the godfather of rock and roll. You know,
0: yeah, no, it's awesome. Now, when you write or need to clear your head, Fred, do you listen to any type of music, or you have a set procedure where you can't have, even if you love the band or song, you can't hear it while you're in the process of writing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I I've been interviewed a lot over the years, John. No one's ever asked me that question. I well, you mentioned that you read my my first. Book ghost which was my memoir and uh i was always a big uh bruce springsteen fan actually i saw springsteen uh when before he was on the cover of time magazine at uh lisner auditorium in washington dc and it was the size of like a gymnasium and then of course the world changed after you know he born to run comes out and the rest is somewhat history uh i also saw um uh Elvis in, uh, 1976 at, uh, the Capitol center, the old Capitol center in the DC area. Wow. So, uh, you know, he was, he was, uh, I think he passed away shortly thereafter a couple of years later, but, you know, he still could sing and he only sang for about an hour and it was pretty neat to just be able to see him as well. So, you know, I always listened to, you know, as a product of the sixties growing up in the seventies, you know, um, I listened to a lot of music in those days. Uh, you know, from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to the Almond Brothers, Marshall Tucker Band. Um, so, I'm, I'm, I like looking back. Ted and I talk about this all the time, and um, Ted's working on an unbelievable music project himself. But the history of some of these bands and how they just rise like a meteor and then, in many ways, crash like the Leonard Skinnerd band to me is. Is um, just very unique.
2: Yeah, there, think, yeah. Let, me, let me add one thing to Fred's pointer because he brings up something that's that's fascinating. And since we're talking about this time frame, so the project he mentioned is something I'm developing uh, on the Alice Cooper band called Billion Dollar Babies, and oh, we've yeah. got uh, you know we've got both Shep and Alice uh, on board. And essentially, and this is a true story. So the band is out, uh, uh, you know, trying to make a name for themselves. And gradually getting a bit of steam but somehow shep gets a deal to move them into greenwich connecticut into a 50-room manor that is haunted by the ghost of clyde fitch who's a broadway playwright they move into this place and record billion dollar babies and one of the things you can probably speak to in the music industry is is when you're creating if you're in a studio and you're not getting the right vibe you'll go to another studio you know you'll shift location so in this case they came into greenwich into this manor and created the work that really, really changed the whole industry. In fact, they went from this sort of concert show industry at the clubs to the arena industry, and they surpassed the records of the Rolling Stones in the early 70s, too, based on the success of that. So it's, a, it's an amazing true story of how they really came together and got that uh, that creative work done.
0: I just love the friendship between chap and Alice, because the first time I met them, I was, in, I was doing press for Nickelback, and we're in Paris, and I hear... Because Alice's voice for me is very, I can pick it out of a crowd. Like, I love his music. I love all that. And I heard like, man, it sounds like Alice Cooper, but this is way too random. Like we're in a dimly lit hotel lobby bar. Like there is no way. And sure enough, I'm looking over and uh, Chad, the singer of Diggleback, goes, no, that's Allison and Shep. And that's the first time I had heard who Shep was because I wasn't, I'm not, I know enough people in the music industry, but I don't, I'm not that guy. Mm. It's like, oh, that's Shep. That's, uh, that's whoever. Sure. I don't, uh, and But getting to talk to him and the both of them, it's like that friendship is so surreal in this day and age where friendship is so important um, and the trust you have in one another, uh, which kind of leads me, oddly enough, is people are going to be wondering why is Fred and Ted on here? And Fred, I kind of want you to kind of jump in here about your friendship and how you – what in your life led you to Fred.
1: Sure. It's uh, – well – you can't make some of this stuff up at times john and ted As as you know uh, i wrote a book uh, a few years ago called uh, chasing shadows and uh it's the story of um uh, the 1973 murder of uh, an israeli military attache in chevy chase maryland my um my old stomping grounds and um Colonel Joe Alon was the victim in this case. He was a hero of the, the state of Israel. He was actually one of the founders of the Israeli Air Force. And, and he's in a very key role in Washington, D.C. In, in a very unique time in history with uh, great power competition, events transpiring in the Middle East. Of course, you're in the height of the Cold War. And he comes home from a party and he gets murdered in his in his car. And uh, the family has flown back home the next day. I actually went to high school with um, Colonel Alon. I call him Joe, Joe's uh, oldest daughter. And so in putting the story together, it's, it's uh, one of these kinds of cases that, that took me 37 years to solve. Uh, I'm a bit persistent, but uh, uh, I actually... Um, reopened the case formally when I became a special agent and did what I could during that time period. But we had so much chaos in the world with hijackings and embassy bombings that it was just impossible to do a lot of work. So the book came out and um, lo and behold, about a year and a half ago now, um, I get a contact uh, out of the blue by Ted. And Ted said, hey, you know, I, uh, my father knew Joe Alon, um, and uh, I've come across some information that you might find is helpful. And of course, you know, that, you know, I, I immediately seized upon that, and now I'll toss it over to Ted. Yeah,
2: and so this, and the way that this came together is a very uh, uh, interesting organic story in itself. And uh, I knew a little bit about what dad did, but growing up in that environment, as you probably, as you both know, you can't speak about your work. So you get used to the fact you can't really ask dad what he does, but he had an office in the Pentagon, we moved frequently, he spoke a lot of different languages, was highly skilled, and uh, came out of MACV SOG, which is a very elite special ops group. So, And we had that plaque, in fact, all over our house, the, the emblem with the skull on it. So from the early age, I can't ask him too many questions, but I did know there were some very interesting elements to that line of work. And I remember one day specifically going into the Pentagon. Uh, through all the security checkpoints all the way back into the to the you know deep into the place and the one room that always left an impression on me was the one that was like a cement tunnel almost there were no right angles and it was like just being inside this this uh, uh structure that was very very uh very very solid and the papers on dad's desk were either flipped over or had top secrets st- uh, stamped on them, just like something out of a movie so later on and this is you know towards our, our last conversations that's when dad had said look see if you can help figure out who killed my friend Joe Alon. And I'm like, okay, so so give me the information on that. And he gave me some specific details on the matter. And essentially, you know, some of the broad strokes are that he and Joe were involved in some very high level operations, which Fred has helped to sort of shed light on based on the handwritten journals my father kept during those days, which I now have. And, wow. uh, you know, a lot of this, it, it's, you know, what the two of them did together and essentially the group that came after Joe, and this is what I heard just straight from my father, also called out uh, that same threat on our family. And that was relayed to my mother through a series of phone calls. And so some of this information is what I brought to Fred and said, why don't we try to connect some of the dots? You know, Fred, you'll know this space very, very well because you've written a book on it. I can provide what I know. I can help go through the journals and help decode some of this. And let's see if we can put more of the pieces together and get an understanding for the work that uh, that dad and Joe were involved in.
1: Wow. and john, just to to for your listeners' understanding of this of these connections uh you know you have two warriors, two men in uniform, one with the Israeli government, who was a hero of the Israeli air force, his family murdered in the Holocaust. you have Ted's dad who you know quite frankly is uh, a hero in the in the US military, they're at the Pentagon, they're collaborating together in trying to keep both of our nations safe. The state of Israel, you know, certainly uh, is always under constant threats and the US. And so that interaction of those two people to me is just fascinating because of the, the time period that this was taking place. But more importantly, what struck me when Ted first reached out to me And I want to say this is, you know, Ted's dad's dying wish was to try to get to the bottom of this, to try to find out what happened to his buddy who's murdered in 1973. So this is also a man who can't forget and he wants some sort sense of closure and justice Mm -hmm. and and so forth. So for me, as as a father uh, of... And Ted following his dad's dying wish to try to get to the bottom of it is just amazing in itself. And um, that's what really brought us together. And what's
0: amazing is that this case, had, had Ted not reached out to you about this, this case at 73 or wherever they shut it down, would, it would still be kind of shut down, correct? Like there was the reason for With Ted reaching out to you, Fred, to kind of get this thing rolling again, this is what kind of got people talking, doing more stuff, research about this thing, correct?
1: Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Meaning, uh, you know, Ted reaching out to me, uh, quite frankly, re energized me uh, to look at um, some loose ends, which I never have been successful in in resolving. For example, and you know this from your background, uh, John, that you know, the getaway car was a white sedan, not further specified. Um, I was able to identify the shooter in the case. I won't spoil it for anybody that wants to read the book. Right. But I've never, I've never been able to identify the wheel man. And it's, it's driven me absolutely crazy. I know that the group Black September carried out the attack. Black September had also carried out the Munich massacre, the murder of the 11 Israeli athletes uh, in Munich, Germany in 1972, which turned into a film by Steven Spielberg called Munich. Good film. And uh, they were on a tempo of attacks around the globe, uh, killing, hijacking, assassinating Israeli diplomats. And then that subsequently led to the Israeli Wrath of God squads, where they fanned out around the world and started assassinating Black September individuals. So in the midst of all this, you've got Ted's dad, who's working at uh, the Pentagon on some high level, very sensitive projects. And uh, so this time period to me is just uh, amazing. And and the collision of these two worlds and so forth. So, you know, but at the end of the day, I I think this is a story about um, fathers, sons, Mm -hmm. victims, uh, the human aspect of the kind of business that, that, people forget about. Now, when you go
0: through these journals, Ted, as you're older now and stuff, does this kind of give you a more of a sense of closure in terms of now you understand what your dad was a part of? Because well, before the journals, right, you were probably like, what's going on?
2: Well, to a degree, it's, it's um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's closure in a way, but it's also opening up new avenues because now I'm starting to connect the dots with the help of Fred and Fred's friend, Ed Golian as well, I'll mention. And so I start to get actually more questions And it's funny because I told Fred this story. You know, there were little hints I would get into dad's background. One in particular, uh, he would come out here and visit from time to time, right? And we would always go and, and have lunch at a place called Tracton's up in Encino. So in this one case, we didn't go there. We went to Benihana instead. So Benihana, as you know, is a hibachi table with about eight people sitting around this table. And so I take a brief restroom break, three minutes. I come back. He knows everyone's first and last name, where they live, what they do for a living, and is speaking fluent Japanese with the waitress. And I'm like this is interesting and it's funny because it brings to mind that famous quote he has an unusual skill set and then there was one other instance and I you know I won't spoil too much because these are some of the things Fred and I will go into in our project but there was a case of where someone in the music industry and you'll know because this this happens uh, had the bright idea to not hold up their end of the bargain and this was a contract and I was you know it was one of the first deals I signed as a kid you know and I was talking to dad, I was studying contracts in college. I said, look, you know that somehow they're not holding up their end of the bargain. And he's like, oh, so what's the name of this individual? Gave him the name, where does he live? Gave him the address, what kind of car does he drive? Kind of shared a little bit of information. And all of a sudden, everything was good. I got all the all the paperwork I was expecting and they held up their end of the deal. And, and it just goes to show you that, and I think that's referred to as a phone call, that there's a, a level of, of negotiation that can be done Based on this unusual skill set, let's just put it that way.
0: Now, for you to write mm-hmm. a book and your friendship, friend with Joe, um, there are other cases, uh, but I don't know how many. But I'm sure there's other cases where people that were killed or uh, assassinated, and stuff like that. But you were able to write the story for Joe. Is it for you, as you get older? Are there other stories like that you want to help tell or help shed some light on? Because people like Joe are necessary, uh, like your father, Ted, they're necessary. And so for me, I wish there are more storytellers out there to help kind of tell these stories because I think it is important.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that, John. I, I said this the other day to someone, you know, guilt is a, is a powerful motivator. I, I look back on some of these cases, whether it be the assassination of Colonel Alon in 1973 and, and our government did not do a good job investigating that case at the time, nor did the Israeli government, to be blunt. And and nor did I when I was in an official capacity to do so. And a lot of these people, like Ted's dad, would have been alive if I could have found him. And and my efforts were not that good. And so, you know, the first thing I did in that story was reach out to the family and um solicited their cooperation. And and, you know, try to see what they might have learned over the course of these years in, in the case. And, you know, because they hadn't forgotten the fact that their dad was shot and killed on the front lawn of their house. And, right. and you know, it, it also drove me to write uh, my last published book, Beirut Rules, which was a story of, you know, the murder of uh, the kidnapping and murder of Bill Buckley, the CIA station chief in Lebanon, who it was also a case that I worked in. And, you know, you get in this business, and I, I don't know how it is in the music business, but, you know, when the family tells you after the fact, you know, thank you, or, I really appreciate you keeping the memory of my loved one alive, or um, that makes it worthwhile. And so I try to go back to these cases, John and Ted, that um, really need to be told. And there's some stories that, that should be told. And... <laughs> there's heroes all, all, all over the place that, and history is littered with them. And just the, you know, for me at my age, you know, the hourglass of time is kind of working against me, but um, you know, I'll still do what I can to try to shine a little light on some of these cases that I worked.
0: Now with blue blood films, Ted appears, obviously you talked about the Alice Cooper thing you're working on uh, that you wanted to help tell stories uh, that are, powerful and can help others or just really true stories so stories like uh colonel like do you is your goal with the the film production company like to help tell these stories and to kind of get these out there because i think i think it is again in the in the world of remakes and crazy cgi and i'm all for all the fighting i'm all for all the action movies but there has to be more people mm. like yourself companies like yourself that can help facilitate and tell these stories uh, to get them out there to the masses, correct?
2: Yes. And I think to your point, it's the level of authenticity that I strive for. And it's, you know, and, and to a degree, it's kind of like in, you know, in music, you're telling a three minute story, you know, in, in a television episode, you're telling a 60 minute story and in a film, a 90 minute story, but it needs, it needs to be compelling. And they always say, talk about what you know. And I think if you default to talking about that, which is authentic, that translates to the content. And the one thing that uh, in fact, Shep has made this point uh, with the Alice Cooper thing. Is it's the authenticity that that has, and in the case of Fred and I, as as Fred uh, so eloquently put it, you can't make this stuff up. You know the way we came together, uh, uh, the motivation behind that, and the way that this kind of ties into the father and son, and and the need to want to know your own your family background, and how does that a commonality with others who may share the same thing. So I think it's that level. It's the authenticity, and I also found out this is interesting. I just learned from my cousin that my father was apparently in a think tank with tom Clancy, and 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 contributed to almost all those those projects and that's lending that level of authenticity and it's kind of like the intro to the one film where uh the gentleman is sitting at the bar and goes why is it and i don't know why but i can assess everyone at this bar i know this guy weighs about 160 pounds can handle himself you know this whole this whole assessment factor and that's why the story of Benny Hanna kind of struck me as something very similar to that so now learning that only recently about Tom Clancy doesn't surprise me all that much uh, in hindsight.
0: You, uh, you mentioned the hourglass, Fred, uh, and you look great for 50, honestly. Uh, (laughs) Thank you.
1: I, (laughs) I appreciate that, John.
0: uh, And, but with the hourglass, I know you've read, you mentioned in your books uh, this idea of this little book you carry with you with names that are uh, people that you've wanted to uh, capture. I mean, obviously that's the right word, but people that, have been a part of your life for the wrong reasons that you want to get take them off the list. You've been fortunate enough to take names off and add names on there. But as you get older, is there a, do you ever look back where you're like, man, I I wish I could have got two more of these names off yesterday? Or is it a regret thing for you? Or is this a thing where you can only do as much as you could? Now with social media and technology today improving, maybe you can get some of these people again or whatever. But do you ever have regret when it comes to Like, hey, I wish I could get all the names on this list.
1: All the time. I mean, I I think about that probably, John, uh, every day. Wow. Uh, Literally, uh, how I probably could have done more when I was in an official capacity to do so. And um, I, I would like to think or I've rationalized in my mind that, well, we were too busy. We were always undermanned. We always had a new bombing, a new killing. So but you know that you know the older i get and i look back on that it it was uh, an easy out an easy excuse you know case in point i remember when i first opened the 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 killing of colonel elan case it was probably 1986 when i formally reopened that and i remember in those days typing my telegram on a IBM Selectric, this is before we had a computer, and uh, sending it to the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv and asking our uh, office to work with uh, the Israeli National Police, Shinbad, or Mossad, and try to see what they could turn up on the Elan murder from 1973. And and I remember getting like a message back saying, you do realize this is 1986. (laughs) And I said yes i know it's a cold case but uh we have a lot of missing information and you know the weeks kind of dragged on the weeks drags into months and then i i had my own little three by five index card case management system <clears throat> and after coming back from lord knows what investigation i sent another message to tel aviv saying hey you know per my earlier message from 90 days ago have you got any information on this and It was like crickets. And I finally got a note back and basically they said, the embassy came back and said, you know, nobody here has any information pertaining to the case. And it was like, clearly nobody wanted to work on it or nobody wanted to try either. And, and so um, that was kind of like the status of how a lot of these cases were worked throughout the 60s and the 70s, and even well up into the late 80s, you know, it, it was just the way we did business. So there were so many cold case major attacks, John and Ted, that it was just, you know, truth, the, the truth into a lot of them still hasn't been told. And the details surrounding murders of our U.S. ambassadors and employees around the globe at times, there, there's many unanswered questions that remain today from a lot of these attacks that happened in the 70s.
0: With obviously, with the you guys are still trying to figure out who the wheelman is and the, the Black September stuff. Uh, one of our listeners, Kim D, was wondering Are you ever afraid of a retaliatory attack from one of these groups, or how active are these groups still that are, are, are actively aware that you and Tad are not only putting out something that's going to tell the story, but still trying to find this wheelman?
1: Well, I'm not concerned. Uh, I I think that uh, you know groups like the Black September are pretty much all been neutralized and eliminated by the uh, Israelis uh, over the course of time. And these are all old people now, old men mostly, uh, though they did have a couple females that were associated with the group. Uh, they've either rehabilitated themselves and and got real jobs, uh, or they've all passed away. And and so. I'm not. I mean, I don't think about that. I, by the nature of my my life and so forth, I'm I'm cautious. I'm very situationally aware. And um, you know, down here in the great state of Texas, you can carry as many weapons yeah. as you want. So, you know, um, but but I'm not.
0: Gotcha. One of now for me, Ted. I'll start with Ted here. When, the, when something like Benghazi first happened, there was so much anger and questions. And mm. when something like that happens for you, Ted, and I'm a, I'll preface this, you and I are on the outside looking at what this is. Fred's in the, he knows like the workings of the type of stuff. So what is your first reaction? And like like me, were you kind of just so bad that you do love this country, you love what it stands for, What it's good and bad, whatever it is, you still love America. When something like that happens is do you feel like your anger like mine was misdirected because you were just so angry It maybe you just didn't understand what really happened?
2: Well, there's always, there's always an element of anger or any kind of an emotional response is always going to be rooted in, in reaction rather than looking at assessing the facts. And then to your point also, depending on where the facts, and, and i use that in air quotes here, come from, right. is going to determine on, on the angle of that. And everything seems to have an angle, if you will. So... I think it's good to be judicious and really look at things in a measured fashion, despite the circumstances that may be elevated, and assess based on actual, you know, trying to gather knowledge. And I think from as many sources as you can, and you know, for me personally, a lot of my family, in fact, I'm the only one that went into the arts, everyone else was in either law enforcement, military, special ops, you name it. So I always had a number of sources uh, from the different people in terms of what that information was. And I also saw that I think one of the lessons I learned from my father is he he was a very conservative guy for the most part. One of his best friends forever, also in the same line of work, was a little more on the liberal side, and they never let politics get in the way of the friendship. And what that taught me is always look at things in a measured fashion, look at the facts, and be open to honest discussion. I think if you retain an open mind, despite a circumstance that's elevated, you can try to get to the details a little better. But again, to your point, yes, you do react. Initially, and then you have to kind of find that grounding and, and, and get more details. Right.
1: And from my end, John, uh, you know, I certainly stepped into the lion's den with uh, Under Fire, uh, the story on Benghazi. And that was such a political hot potato and still is to some degree, depending upon, you know, which news agency you want to watch in any given day. But, and with my books, what I've always tried to do is lay out the facts and let the reader draw a conclusion. And, you know, heck, there's a heck of a lot of more smart people out there than me that, uh, you know, are reading these kinds of stories and trying to make sense of some of these problems. And, And so for me, you know, the Benghazi story was, my motivation for that is, we had five young State Department special agents who I was once one of those many many years ago and i felt sorry for them in many ways being placed in that position where help at times is an aircraft carrier away and as you know in this business john things when they start to spiral out of control there's usually a domino effect and and there's this convergence of all of these events whether it be a lack of intelligence physical security breakdown whatever and the key Cumulative effect of all that is usually tragedy, and so I really wanted to tell a heroic story of five young men trapped behind enemy lines, trying to do the best damn job they possibly could with limited resources, and um, and we did. I think um, you know we laid out a very measured book uh, that is not political and uh, let the readers make their own judgment as to what could or could not have been done. Ted,
0: when it comes to, since you are in the industry of movies and filmmaking, uh, when it comes to people that want to tell a story, whether it's Black Hawk Down, Survivor, 13 Hours, all these Hollywood-based movies based on real life events, do you you feel from your end that the Hollywood, again, air quotes on that, uses these stories as he means to, like, where do you draw a line between telling the story with facts, like you both agree, versus we need to sell tickets and popcorn and gonna throw some stuff in here? Like the human element of all these stories—that's what interests me as a person that loves film and movies. Like the human aspect of these people. And so, in mm. your world, how is it? Does it bother you that sometimes some of these productions will take a really unique, incredible, amazing story and just kind of sprinkle it with too much of that Hollywood
2: on it? Oh, certainly. And, and I think, you know, if, if you ask 10, to 10 people, to get 10 opinions. But I absolutely agree with that, where there's always this angle. And I think certain, certain, certain times it smacks of people who don't really have full context or they don't have someone in their, on their team that really understands that space very well and doesn't understand it's the authenticity of that story that's going to resonate. Now, someone may not be able to consciously tell you that if they've watched it, but they'll either find themselves engaged in the story or somehow not. And I think the ones that where they lack the authenticity and don't have a clear sense of direction. Uh, a lot of times we call that done by committee. Uh, I think that can tend to, uh, to, to yield a product. That's just not as good. You want a story that really the authenticity and the realness is going to grab people. And it's, it's tough to really qualify that, but that's really the essence. Right. And so that's what, that's what for me personally, in terms of telling any kind of story, that's what I strive for is that level of authenticity. But there's another phrase. That We also use in kind of a humorous way is don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. So you do want to have it rooted in truth, but there is a difference just to kind of put a little fine point on it between a documentary, which is certainly one space, and then based on true events, but retaining the character of those events rather than going so far off the deep end that it's clearly fictional. So I, I like I the one that kind of straddles that line where you retain the authenticity and the realness of it but you can tell a story that may, you know, you can resonate, you can bring people in by the nature of the, of making that story grab them by the heartstrings, if you will. Hopefully that answer made sense. No,
0: I love that. Mm-hmm. Now, For you, Fred, what movies or TV shows for you would you look at as a, uh, and I know a ton of movies that have like the, the DS agents or whoever, that that realm. Uh, are there anything out there that stick out there where you're kind of like, no, this is done pretty well, It's done tastefully, or somewhere you're just like, oh god like we're not like this is too much uh
1: well first uh i'm, I'm a big bosch fan uh, oh. i think the tv series bosch i was fortunate enough to uh tour the set where that was uh, filmed and and uh hosted by the lapd hollywood division uh which was a true honor and just wonderful people and the the folks on the set could not have been more pleasant and gracious and and so forth, which was amazing. I think Titus Welliver, the the actor there, plays a perfect old burnout homicide cop. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, FADA, which which follows uh, an Israeli undercover team uh, into uh, the West Bank and so forth. And um, I also really, really like the series Tehran. And uh, if you haven't watched it, you need to. It's great. It, it centers on uh, the Israeli Mossad, uh, you know, looking at the Iranian target and doing battle in the cold, in the in the shadow war with uh, the Israeli uh, intelligence, I mean, the Iranian intelligence service. And so I think that's very tastefully done. Uh, there was a French um, series called The Bureau, and it's really amazing tradecraft-wise if you watch that, because... Um the acting's superb. The plots are just right current. And and so that's very well done as well.
0: For you, Ted, if you want your company want to go in and do a story on say uh, Secret Service or DEA, ATF, whatever it is, what is the protocol in terms of do you have to reach out to their uh, I can't think of the word their their counterpart over there where it's like, hey, you could talk about this, you can film certain stuff like this. Is there like a thing where you have to kind of straddle the line in terms of what you could tell about a certain story?
2: Well, for me personally, I would want to engage someone who really knows that. And case in point here, as soon as I heard about uh, Colonel Alon, uh, my first go-to was, let me do a little research. I found Chasing Shadows and Fred, and this is the gentleman I need to speak with. So inherently, and again, because I was raised in a military environment, I understand that the, the mindset, I would certainly go to the source who really, uh, who really knows it and do things the correct way. I like to follow the, you know, the the protocol, if you will, in terms of having a good foundation. And part of that good foundation is talk with the guys who really understand that space, the folks who know this, and begin there, and then tell the story in, in a way that is befitting of that.
0: Now, for you, for for you, Fred, you know, this, oh, let's ask you this too, Ted when you're having a bad day, whether it's creatively, you can't think you can't write, your notes are garbage. What do you do to kind of reset yourself to kind of continue on? Like, like kind of go through that process? Because here, I love note taking. And I can't stress the idea of just writing notes down or just writing as a form of therapy for myself. But if I'm trying to be creative, for me to kind of stay creative, I have to kind of do, play music really loud, uh, listen to Cinderella uh, Peace Festival, Russia, really loud on YouTube or watch a movie that I love or something where I just had something to complete 180. So for you as a author, um, what do you do to kind of reset yourself if you're having one of those days?
1: Well, uh, you know, for me, I, I always use the advice that my good friend, Brad Thor gave me, who's a, a brilliant thriller yeah. writer. Uh, This is a job. You get up every day and you go to your job. So I try to write every day, every morning, uh, and uh, I religiously do that. And so even if I've got nothing to say, I always try to put some words on paper in support of whatever project that I'm working on or whatever article I might be writing at that moment in time. So that helps me just process mentally to, to be able to stay in tune. And then, of course, you know, I think it's important, especially when you get to my age, to, you know, to exercise and take care of your body. So I always make time to do that. And um, so those are the two things that I always strive to do each and every day.
0: Right. But how about you, Ted, how do you kind of reset yourself if you're, you're not feeling into it that day?
2: Well, it's, it's, to a degree, it's, it's somewhat similar to what you do. You know, I, I may uh, crank up my Marshall amp and play, you know, some loud guitar patch. I still play a lot of guitar. I'll crank up maybe some uh, some Slayer Metallica, Bring Me the Horizons, one of the newer bands. It's really yep. cool. Uh, maybe watch an episode of The Sopranos to kind of, you know, get recalibrated. Uh, Pulp Fiction, that's a good go-to movie. Uh, Big Lebowski on another yep. level. That's terrific. Um, maybe an episode of uh, Sons of Anarchy, which is a great show. So, you know, it's some of these things to kind of just sort of reboot the brain or equilibrium. I should point out, that's another terrific movie with, uh, with Christian Bale. Yes. From about 2002. So yeah. Something now, to about that.
0: now for you, Ted, if someone say 20 years down the road and someone's like, man, you got a Joe or a, Ted has a great story to tell, uh, has, has lived a great life. I don't do a, a movie or a story on him. Would it be weird for you? And same thing, Fred, if 10 years down the road, someone's like, man, Fred writes all these great stories about other people, but let's write a book on Fred. What would your reception to both of those scenarios be, Start with you, Ted?
2: I would, I would be absolutely open to that, because the funny thing is, we all look at our own stories and our own background as what we call normal, right. to someone else, it may not be so normal. So when I share stories of like what my father did, and the story about Benny Hanna's and, and the Joe Alon thing. Oh, and then the other remarkable thing is when that threat was called out and he said, you know, as long as my family's protected, they said, do you need protection, sir? No, nah, I can handle these guys. So that to me is normal, but to someone else, they may go, wait a minute, that's kind of remarkable. So you never know uh, from an audience perspective what they're going to find engaging, but certainly speak about what you know. And I could certainly talk endlessly <laughs> about some right. of the interesting things I saw growing up. So I think that would be, that'd be a lot of fun.
0: Awesome. How about you, Fred?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, for me, having uh, written already my memoir, uh, I, I, uh, don't know what else I would say, but, uh, I, I have had the good fortune to appear in a few other books that people have either come across some of the old cases that I worked and referenced, um, you know, some of the, whether it be the capture of Ramsey Yosef, you know, the mastermind of the first world trade center bombing, which, you know, quite frankly, I've gotten way too much credit for that, uh, and, and other similar kinds of cases. So. What I try to do now is I'm I'm constantly helping either other authors or students that reach out to me for their PhD thesis they're working on, on whatever topic. When it's in the terrorism realm or whatever, asking me questions about you know that time period or space. And so I try to give back in that in that manner as well as best I possibly can. I can't help people get published. That's the challenge today. You know, it's. it's tough to get published. and um, but I can't help them try to provide some guidance and mentor them as to some of the things I've learned over the time, just you know living and being in this space.
2: And John, to but- your point, you know one, one other thing to add here about uh, telling a story and, and that's kind of like and, and Fred sort of inspired me in this regard is uh, the Chasing Shadows project that we're in the midst of developing now will weave in a big component of my father's backstory and then also to a degree sort of my experiences uh which are relatively unusual and unique in the music industry and how these intertwined and how does that uh how does a, a musician slash filmmaker team up with a former dss agent and shed light on a cold case about a murdered israeli diplomat that's a pretty it's a pretty interesting log line there and so i think uh to that effort we're we're making some good progress in sort of exploring that and we have a you know some some really good people on the team that are looking into making that happen.
0: It sounds like a, one of those bad libs as a kid in the car when your parents are throwing you to keep you from bothering the adults in the front where it's like, give me a noun, give me a verb and throw it together. And here, you guys are actually <laughs> doing it. Now, is there a, I don't know if you can really say much about it, and it's great, and it's active, but what's the timeline here? Like, is this going to be a, a release to streaming or a movie theater type thing? What's your goal here for this project?
2: Well, the, the, the goal here, uh, John, is to, Get the development team engaged and really turn this into a feature that's that's sort of what we're looking at now it could be that there's enough of a, a storyline there and some other aspects that we haven't thought of yet that could lend itself to serialize but i believe the feature is the way to go and and you know to, to the what fred and i have discussed how you tie this into the universal quest to know about your background father-son relationships that whole thing kind of like road to perdition in a, in a way yep
0: that's awesome now, I know you're both obviously. Before I let you go, you're on social media and stuff. You got websites, but if people want to reach out to you, Fred, uh, do they do that on Instagram? Like, how do you want to, if someone, if an aspiring author has a question or uh, someone, another some person like Ted has another issue where it's like, oh my God, like, how do they reach out to you? Or like, how receptive are you to people doing that?
1: Oh, I, I get uh, requests all the time. Uh, they can visit my website, which is uh, simple, official, fredburton.com. Uh, I'm certainly on Twitter and instagram and so there's a contact form on my website if somebody wants to reach out directly or or hit me up on social media
0: well, that's awesome how about you ted
2: yes i have an instagram page so that's that's certainly a way to reach out and also at the the blue blood films and my other company uh, production black market entertainment so either of those or imdb i think people you know kind of find us through there so yeah any of those means is, is totally fine
0: I love it. Uh, this has been awesome, gentlemen. And Once the project comes to fruition more, I'd love to have you back on again to kind of dig uh, a little deeper back into it. But uh, this has been a lot of fun.
2: Thanks, John.
1: Thank you, John. Very kind of you to have us on.
0: No, thank you, gentlemen. And uh, we'll uh, talk soon. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. What's get up, John? If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support, be safe, and see you next week.